0: Hi folks, my name is Chris and I'm the artist and co-founder at Explorer Maps.
1: Hi, this is Vanessa, Chris's wife. I have been a number one fan of Chris's art since I first met him in the late 1990s. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code Mandela for a discount when you visit explorermaps.com.
0: Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in collaboration with Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far as well as information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at TrailLessTraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela.
2: This evening, the Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in the kitchen of the legendary Brad Dimick. We're at his home in Arizona, where he builds boats and has been for a long time. Today, they made three boats out of paper, and eventually, these boats will become wooden boats. Brad, it's been on my list of things to do for a long time to interview you, and I'm stoked to be at your home today. So, thank you so much for joining me on the trail less traveled.
3: I'm excited to blather. I guess been a great day. Had a little tequila and. Built a bunch of boats, as Mandela said. But yeah, welcome. What should we chat about?
2: You might hear some plantains being fried in the background, so just full disclosure, we are in the kitchen tonight. But it's a great time to share stories, often the kitchen is. Mm -hmm. So Brad, my first question
3: for you, where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I grew up in uh, Ithaca, New York, actually about five miles east of Ithaca, New York, in a hollow was they called them back there, a valley, Ellis Hollow. And I was the uh, last of uh, four kids, and I was kind of accidental. I kind of grew up as an only child, in a way. Played in the sandbox a lot, on the rope swing a lot, walked in the woods a lot. Spent a lot of time on my pogo stick, paddled around in circles in my little plastic boat until I got too heavy and it sank. I like being outdoors, I liked being alone. I never dreamed I would end up out west as a boatman, for God's sake. What else? I was terrible in school, underachiever, greased my SATs, flunked all my classes. That, that one of those kids drives the teachers insane. Found out about this hippie school out in Arizona, so I came out here to go to college. They were supposed to go to college in my family. Prescott College was great. And the the first thing they do is take you down the river or take you somewhere. It's kind of an outward bound course, and mine was down Grand Canyon. And it kind of got me interested in that trajectory and started taking geology courses and this and that. Then another trip was offered to me with the Prescott College kids over vacation and Summer of 73, I, I needed something to do. And I applied to all the river companies and became a helper boy on a motorboat company. And next thing I knew, I was a boatman. And now look what's happened. It's 2021. This is 50 years from my first trip, and I'm still down there being a boatman. But a lot of other things have happened.
2: Brad, can you tell us a little bit more about growing up and just some of your earliest memories of adventures like you've said about spending time in boats and
3: kind of the evolution of you as a boat builder? Okay, back there. So Ellis Hollow, where I grew up, was at that time, there were maybe 50 families in this entire valley. My mom was a rabble-rouser, so she was always getting everybody to do stuff, you know, create community events and the big fair, and we built a ski hill, and we built a skating rink, and this was all my mom's pushing, pushing, pushing. Our house was an old farmhouse on three acres surrounded by 200 acres that the old feller behind us had bought in the Depression, and it was all forest. felt like we owned the entire world, the whole wilderness, and we had little trails in the woods and little camps and forts. And I grew up in this quasi-wilderness, and this is this is not East Coast so much as it's inland. It's where uh, New England meets Appalachia. My elementary school was you know, within a mile of the border between where people were Appalachian white trashy hick weird strange culture and then the new england culture and there were two kindergarten first grade second grade third grade and and we didn't even understand that these were the same species it was very weird i was on the the new england side somebody picked me out one time a linguist on a river trip picked me out Located where I was from within 100 yards by my accent, which is Upstate New York, Appalachian Hick Drawl, well-educated, therefore Cornell, which is where my dad taught. Anyhow, but I just wandered in the woods, and I liked that, and I I didn't have any great adventures. I was a Boy Scout. It was a good Boy Scout. And uh, we did a couple of... uh, Adventures on the creeks with inner tubes, nearly drowned, and never was much of a swimmer, and never was much of a. I didn't like physical education classes, and you know, I never thought that my life would be involved with physical activity by any means. No, it's damn peculiar that I ended up doing what I'm doing, which is being a river guide, which is considered to be a very physical thing because I was just kind of hide out and play in the woods. But here I am. I don't know, it's crazy. I had a passenger one time, and I didn't know who he was, but he, uh, he said, it's, it's funny you're a boatman. And I go, why is that? He said, because you can't even swim. I said, well, why do you say that? He says, I was your Boy Scout leader, and you faked it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh oh shit I know who you are yeah well that's why I'm a boatman because I don't swim for God's sake never trust a boatman who can swim <laughs> they'll get you wet
2: that's the voice of Brad Dimick we're in his kitchen this evening in Arizona Brad Dimick is a boat builder and author and a guide in Grand Canyon among many other talents. Eventually, I'd like to talk to you about some of the boats that you built and some of the history behind them and your experiences taking those boats down the canyon. But can you just share with us a little bit about your early years in Grand Canyon?
3: So I hired on with canyoneers a motor outfit. But it's very early in the uh, professional, in quotes, river guiding because nobody really knew what they're doing much in 1971, two, three I was going to be a helper boy, and we were cooking over fire. We had mercury 20-horse motors that didn't work much at all. Uh, As soon as they sensed there was water near them, they would quit, and you'd yank and yank and yank until you pulled the starter cord out, and then you'd swear and yank that one off and put another motor on, hope that would start. Our food was kind of rustic. We didn't know where there were places to hike. We were just trying to get the gosh-darn boat all the way to Pierce Ferry. It was a seven-day trip, and day one we were lucky to get off the ramp, and day seven we had to be back in Flagstaff, so it was really a five-day trip. It was really a four-day trip because day five was driving across Lake Mead, which was full with a bad motor. It was an adventure, and I feel like I was really lucky that I got to be in on some of these early years of people, you know, crawling up a side canyon and going, wow, there's something here, you know. (laughs) what is up this Maga, Plaga, Maga, Maga Canyon, you know? And uh, Macadamib is one of the great hikes, but nobody seemed to know what's up there and how to get there. And and so we were were able to help discover and invent these hikes and invent interp and invent how to cook food that's edible. And and so that was was a big adventure. But I was a, a swamper, just a helper boy, for the first two years. And I don't know if I'd have done it much longer, but I showed up the third year for the first trip of the year to be a helper boy, and trip leader never showed up. And the other boatman wasn't old enough to be a trip leader, and so I went from swamper to trip leader for the first trip of the year. Absolutely terrifying. But we made it, and people said, Oh, my God, you know, you're awesome, you're wonderful, you're the best ever, and... Young boatmen believe that, you know, and we get all puffed up about ourselves for a while until the river beats the shit out of us and we realize we're not really all that awesome. But by then the hook was set, you know, I had become a Grand Canyon boatman. And then the boss started a rowing program and nobody in the company knew how to row, but I had rowed through Cataract Canyon once with a friend and from Diamond Creek down once. And so I was the senior oarsman for the company. (laughs) Became the director of the rowing program. And we ran one rowing trip a year, but I was hooked. I I wanted to row. And then in nineteen seventy seven they turned the water off for about a month and a half, two months some weird political deal and but they shut the water down to one to two thousand from sometime in april till the first week of june or so and almost everybody just canceled their trips it wasn't the big business it is now but i got a call from the boss said hey ken Slight's at phantom he needs a boatman They're they're already like six days late on their trip he has to go launch another trip and so i hiked in and Got to row out with a wild crew on 1 to 2,000. And I didn't know what I was doing, but neither did they. We survived, and it's wonderful to have seen that low, low water. And then it became really clear to me that I need to leave the big motor company I'm working for and go to work rowing full time. That's what I want to do. And so I quit at the end of that season, and Ken Slight hired me. But also Martin Litton gave me some trips at the end of the year, rowing dories. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Working for Ken was great. I had one day off all summer, and he farmed me out to Mokey Mac to run a daily. So I was just—but I had the energy then, you know. I could do that. I could work every day. And then I did these two trips for Martin Litten in the fall, 18-day Dory trips. We had cooks that did all the cooking and these beautiful wooden boats. The boat I rode that first trip, I'm still rowing. Uh, that sent me on a whole new trajectory into the wooden boat world.
2: Brad, if you could tell us about that journey moving into the wooden boat world in your early times in Grand Canyon, starting to row, and then that journey you took. And um, you said 50 years later, look at where you are today and how much wooden boats are a part of your life.
3: Well, it was, uh, again, a really unexpected transition for me. I was smitten by the look of those boats, of those beautiful wooden boats on the river. I wanted to be there, but I never thought I could be one of them, one of those river guides that rowed wooden boats, Dory Boatman. But I got hired. And I was young and pretty strong and smart enough to figure out how to row. And so they liked me and they kept me on rowing wooden boats. I did as many trips as they'd let me, which wasn't that many. They were smart. They wouldn't let people row marathon seasons. You could do six trips. That was it. But I had to do more. I had to do more. So I was freelancing. I was rowing rubber boats for all the other companies, running motor trips still, doing anything I can. And uh, at the same time, I got the opportunity to go international. I ended up working... Five six seasons on the Biobio Bio River in South America, which is the antithesis of rowing a wooden boat. It was like crash, bang, pinball, class five, nutty boating in rubber boats. And then I would come back up and row wooden boats where you don't go anywhere near a rock. And that was really fun. I mean, I was just boating, 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 boating. But uh, eventually... I kind of wore out you know I just couldn't do that insane crazy boating with people in my boat anymore it just felt like criminal negligence which I think it was and uh, went back to the relative ease of Grand Canyon some people think oh Grand Canyon's a big deal Jesus Christ it's so simple compared to what we were doing overseas But I rode for Martin Litton for 10 years, and I just loved it, loved running those boats. And then he sold out and broke our hearts, and we went to work for the company that bought him out, Oars. And their philosophy didn't agree with mine, and so I had 10 kind of rough years, a slow divorce, and kind of got out of wooden boating. And, And at this point, I hadn't really done much boat building other than rebuilding my own boat which I destroyed but it hadn't occurred to me to be a boat builder or uh, no less a designer of boats or anything like that that all came way later my life has been kind of uh, the path of least resistance for the most part at the end of 10 years working for oars I decided I was done being a river guide I was done rowing and I quit But it didn't work out for me. The quitting didn't work out. I had a couple of private trips I'd committed to and then a movie trip that we were doing stunt boating, and that was kind of fun. And I did take a couple of years off. That's when I was writing a lot and writing books. But then I kind of got sucked back into it. Did some interpretive trips, you know, just coming along and not not dealing with the logistics or running the boat, but just telling stories and talking about geology and human history and this and that, which was one of my passions, a lot of passions. And then uh, a friend who I had taken on her first trip when she was 14 was now managing ASRA, and she asked me to come work for her, and I said, okay, and boom, did 15 or 20 years with ASRA. And it was at that point where I started getting into the building of boats. I just thought, you know, I want to build some. And I went to boat school back in Maine and learned a lot about building boats and worked with some people up in Oregon building boats and started homogenizing all these different techniques into my own cowboy freakazoid way of building boats and bringing in a lot of traditional boat building and uh, a lot of very non-traditional boat building. And so that's where we are today, is trying to preserve the history of these boats but trying to take them to another level at the same time. It's kind of a dance.
2: <laughs>
3: so good. So Perfect.
2: That's the voice of Brad Dimmick. You're on the Trail Less Traveled. We're speaking to Brad about his life making and running wooden boats hung on many other watercrafts. Brad, I'd love to talk to you about some of the historic boats that you have recreated and what it was like to take those down the Grand Canyon.
3: The replicas. That's been a really quixotic quest of mine, galloping into windmills. There have been some horrible boats that have been piloted down the Grand Canyon, and I've always wondered what that was like. Uh, Probably the worst of all of them was one of the first replica boats I built, which was in 1996, I think. Built a replica of Glenn and Bessie Hyde's Sweep scow, which is this giant wooden crate, uh, 20 feet long, five feet wide, three feet tall. No means of propulsion, no way to stop the thing. And you've just got a rudder out front and a rudder in back, and you just pry it into the current, and off you go. And good luck. And it was terrifying, and we had a terrible time. should have died, but we had a pilot boat along with us. Thank God, the last moment, uh, Brian Durker joined us in a, a motorboat, motor uh, raft, and got us out of some of the worst of our trouble. But it gave me a tremendous viewpoint of what Glenn and Bessie Hyde were up against in 1928. And it turns out, I think they knew more about what they were doing than I did. I thought, you know, I'm a Grand Canyon guide. and good Lord, I've been down here all my life, and it's just a different boat, I'll figure it out. Well, I didn't figure out sweet boats on that trip. I survived a sweet boat, but I didn't figure it out at all. And Glenn had, had been up on the salmon, and he had run with Cap Gulicky, or at least had been instructed by him, who was like the god of sweetboats. And later I did learn a bit more about sweetboating boating, and if I'd known that much beforehand, I never would have done the Grand Canyon in that ridiculous box. But as it was, I had that experience and went on to do more research and, and write a book about the hides and what they did. So that was a replica vessel. I hate to even call it a boat. It was a box. A floating coffin is what a lot of people called it. But then I built kind of the the other end of the spectrum, one of the most beautiful boats that ever ran Grand Canyon was built in nineteen thirty-seven by Buzz Holmstrom, who was a genius autodidact, self-taught master of boat building and, and river running. And we recreated his boat, the Julius, in 2001. And I took that down Grand Canyon four times and all over the west, every river that Holmstrom ran, we ran from the Yellowstone, the the salmon from way up in salmon down to Lewiston and the, the rogue from Grants Pass to the sea and the Green River from the source up at the Green River Green River Lakes all the way down to Hoover Dam. Boom! I got to hit the dam with it. And, uh, that boat was brilliant. I mean, it was just a delight to row. It was for a smaller person than I am. He was probably 5'8", I'm 6'4", Bang my knuckles a lot. But, uh, That was just a joy to row. One-man boat, no room for anybody else. And for a seasoned river guide, that's kind of fun. (laughs) You're just all by yourself. And I get to find out a bit more about solo boating, and you'd think that might be scary, but it's just so relaxing. You have no one to worry about. Nobody following you, nobody up ahead, nobody in your boat, and you're just out there and... Taking care of your own business, and that was super fun. I put about 4,000 miles in that boat. That was fantastic. And then, of course, I had to build some more. I built a replica of the, the Edith 1911. It's a long, skinny, lapstrake wooden boat that the Cole brothers took through Grand Canyon based on the, the Galloway design that was perfected more or less in the 1890s by Nathaniel Galloway. And this was one of the bigger, heavier incarnations of it, but it was the 100th anniversary, so I built that. with A lot of help from my buddy Dan Durker, who helped me with all of these boats. And I took that down Cataract Canyon and Lador and Grand Canyon, and it was awful it's too long and too skinny if it was wider or shorter it would have been a way better boat buzz holmstrom had rode the uh, the ultimate incarnation of that which i had done earlier and it was shorter and wider and it worked well but uh yeah took that down through and it it, did. gives you this hard-to-describe picture of who those people were and what they were doing. And, you know, this was the best boat of the time. Nobody had thought of anything better. And then we built uh, a replica of Norm Neville's boat, 1938. First plywood boat, and plywood gave you the ability to build a boat a whole lot quicker and wider and... He went wider and shorter than the Galloway, which is wider and shorter is still where I'm going with boats, even today. That's a horrible boat as well. It was too short. It was, uh, it's only like nine inches tall or something. And so every wave just rolls over the thing and splashes up into this giant cockpit until you're in a swimming pool. And it's very hard to put stuff down in these, these skinny, wide compartments with a tiny little hole to put stuff in in the very middle, and you can hardly reach any, oh God, it's horrible. Greg Reef, a good friend of mine, grandson of the guy who designed it, rose one of those and he loves it, but I didn't like it much. So that was another replica. And then we've also taken down some rebuilt ones. I've had the good fortune to come into possession of some of the very early Oregon boats that came down Grand Canyon. The Betty Boop and the Hetch Hetchy, which are mackenzie style drift boats from Oregon decked over. And I've gotten both of those when they were little more than a pile of rot and just rebuilt, 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 rebuilt until they were uh, good to go. And compared to these other boats, you know, like the Neville's boat and the Edith and the Horrid Scout, I mean, they're delightful because they spin, they turn, and they row really well. But the boat that I've rowed most is the classic. Briggs, Rogue River-style Grand Canyon Dory, which was designed in 1971. My boat was built in 72, and I've rowed at least a hundred times through Grand Canyon in one of those. And all the boats we build now are derivatives of that. They're really, really bulgy at the ends. They really pick up over the waves rather than bust into them. And they're just delightful. And they're so pretty to look at. Very pretty boat. Just designed one yesterday. It's wonderful. It's a Briggs, but it's not.
2: (laughs) Brad, I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that design process. This morning, when I found you and Wesley, you were cutting out pieces of paper and then gluing them together. Then later on, I also saw that same boat, not only in the form of a paper boat, but also in a 3D design. So it sounds like you're experimenting with some new things, but I'd love to talk to you about kind of one of the processes that you go through when you're designing a new boat.
3: I am, I'm not a boat designer by trade for sure. And it took me a long time to get the courage to tweak with the great Briggs Dory. I mean, Jerry Briggs, he never knew it. He never admitted it, but he was a genius. He he designed one of the most beautiful boats to row and to look at that's ever hit white water. And so to tweak that is is a terrifying thing. But I had a friend, a client who wanted one that was bigger, because he's bigger. He's like six foot eight or something ridiculous. So we had to figure out how do we make that bigger. And if you just expand all the measurements equally, it doesn't work usually. They get too long. The shape of water, the shape of a molecule of water doesn't change, and you make your boat bigger, and it's going to get tweaked differently. And so we weren't able to take it much longer, but we could take it a little wider, and you could take it a bit taller and just jiggering around with those numbers and I just went and looked at a lot of bigger boats that did work and took all the proportions off those and then we translated it into a variation on the Briggs Hall and Cricket is my main helper in the shop and she's awesome and you should interview her sometime. We built three models of this boat out of sticks and thin plywood as long as you would think you want to build it and then shorter and then shorter yet. Gave these three models to our client. And we were going, if he doesn't pick that short one, we're not going to do it. And he did, because the shorter one was super beautiful. And we built it for him. It's a gigantic boat. He took it through Grand Canyon. He loved it. I took it through Grand Canyon. I thought it was pretty awesome, too, but a bigger boat than I want to row commercially. But that gave us the courage to say, "Okay, we tweaked a Briggs into something else that worked, and we can do it again. And so we made one significantly smaller, still bigger than the old Briggs boat. And we've got a bunch of those out there now, but still doing those same relative proportional changes. And then we decided, let's make some tiny boats. And this is where it got fun, really fun, because there's this old tub of a plastic boat called a sport yak. It's eight feet long and about four feet wide. looks like a little plastic bathtub. But there was this thing that happened in the 1960s and 70s where Bill Belknap, who's an early boater, Got hold of these things and started running them in white water and teaching people white water courses in these little tubs. And they loved them, but it, it somehow kind of fell away. I think they quit making them for a while, and I don't know what it was, but the sport yak, as these things were called, kind of died away. But there were people who still believed in it. And I got in a conversation with a boat builder up in Moab. and said well let's see if we can make a dory like that and so this was just two years ago and we did, we drew it up, Cricket and I, it has almost the same footprint of these little sport yaks but to my eye I think we were able to recreate the grace of a Briggs boat and so instead of a sport yak we called it a dory yak. and we've built a shitload of them now and they're super fun and it's so exciting to design and built these things so yesterday we built the next one which is going to be a two-man version of it we just kind of expanded it and this is my first dabbling with uh, computer technology Wes here has uh a lot of experience putting numbers into a little black box and making pictures that spin around on the screen and all these dimensions. And, and you can design it, which we do in full size on paper, you know, staring down a long stick and getting the curve just right. And then you punch all these numbers into the computer, and the computer can tell you all the different sizes of the different parts. So we made all these cute little... Paper boats, models of it today in a couple different sizes. And it's awesome because you can actually play with it and see it. So my design process is changing from moment to moment right now. I think messing around with Wes and the computer and doing our analog with ice picks and long sticks of wood, they can work together pretty well. You know, I don't think I ever wanted to abandon the old school where you move the stick a 16th of an inch and you go, no, 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 and you move it back and you move another part of the curve. I love that. But then once we've got our numbers, we can really have some fun with the computer. So that's going to be fun. But I don't have the balls to design a whole new boat. I'm always working off of (laughs) bricks. So far. It's the best boat. Mm. Everything we've tweaked off of a Briggs boat is the best boat ever. And they're so beautiful. Maybe someday I'll design something from scratch, but I don't know. I kind of doubt it. Part of my school of boat building is that I want to learn from everybody. took a course in Japanese boat building, a course in Viking boat building, and I take little bits of this and that from all of them. So we'll see. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way.
1: It was while we were living internationally about 11 years ago that Explorer Maps first started, when Chris and his brother Greg decided to join forces and bring the maps to the whole wide world. Hi, this is Vanessa, Chris's wife. Each map is a labour of love, and I am lucky enough to see them all grow step by step from the early research and planning stages onto a large white piece of paper, through pencilling, inking and finally seeing the real magic happen as Chris adds the colour. As each one reaches the end phase, I get to examine them closely in the hope that I spot any unfinished bits before Chris sends them off. But there's always new illustrations to see every time. I love going to the Missoula Warehouse when we're in Montana to see each unique map on the incredible range of products that Explorer Maps now has. Having lived away from home and families for the past 17 years, our aim of connecting people and place is very poignant to me. And for that reason, my favorite maps are Flathead and the Maasai Mara, because these two places are central to our extended family gatherings and where we have made the best of memories which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times please be sure to use the promo code mandela for a discount when you visit explorermaps.com
2: this evening the trail has traveled is being recorded in arizona we are at the house of brad dimmick and brad built this house that we're in right now and Brad, one of my favorite questions for my guests is to describe to the listener what you see right now and the journey
3: of building this home. I come from a family of carpenters. And uh, I never understood the other kids I met who couldn't just like build shit. It's like, what do you mean you can't like build a set of stairs? What's wrong with you? I thought that was natural. I've always thought, you know, that there's those weird little Australian dogs with a white eyeball that all their life they're waiting for sheep to herd, and then they herd them and as soon as they see them. And our family was always that way with wood and sticks, saws, hammers. My mother's maiden name, Hanshaw, which is handsaw in old English, they come from a long line of carpenters. So building a house didn't seem that intimidating. Thank God I didn't know how hard it was going to be. I never would have started. But I ran into a fellow that got me hooked on the idea of pole building, where you drive poles into the ground, and then you just bolt beams to them, and everything's freestanding. There's no weight-bearing walls, and you can build on a hillside and all that. And I said, well, that's a great idea. And so my girlfriend at the time... Carol Fritzinger, Fritz, another great interview. Mm. We bought this piece of land on the side of Mars Hill back before Flagstaff got trendy for $17,000 and uh, drove a bunch of poles into the side of the hill, which is a long story because it's solid lava, hung a bunch of beams off it. We met a fellow that just bought a sawmill and he bought a big blow down up by Kendrick Mountain. This whole forest had blown over and he got all the trees basically for free. And then he custom cut all the lumber for us. And so we just drew these pictures and came up with a house. And I more structurally oriented and Fritz was more artistic. So between the two of us, we came up with something that was pretty cool looking and wasn't gonna fall down. And then I spent a year or so fighting with the city of Flagstaff to try and get them to let us build it. Ah, the city. Oh, Lord. But it's horribly over-engineered. I mean, this thing is so solid. Uh, volcano is probably going to be what takes it out. But it was a long process to build it, and then Fritz and I went separate ways, and I was on a boatman's wage and spent 10 years of misery trying to get the damn thing livable, and eventually did, eventually did. But so much of this place is, is built by the boating community. Every place I look, I see boatman hands, all these huge beams that we're looking at were carried up by hand when they were green and they weighed a ton. Excuse me. A lot of F-words here. (laughs) And uh, now they don't weigh much, but they've had 40 years to try out. Good Lord. Everywhere you look, there's all these weird little details. But it's lovely. It's open. It's, It's radiant floor heat. It's really hard to go anywhere when I could just stay here. We're up above the town of Flagstaff looking down on it and you can see all the little people down there scurrying about and honking their horns and turning on their sirens and we're up against the mountain here up against uh, Mars Hill, the observatory so out the front door it's seven blocks to downtown and out the back door it's 35 miles to pavement which is right on the edge it's pretty cool, a lot of woodpeckers Yeah, but I love this place. I don't think I'll leave. I had to get new knees so I could get up to it every day, because it's kind of on a hillside. But now that i got fake knees, I think I'm good for a while.
2: Brad, you're also a geologist, and I've been honored to be a part of some of your geology interp talks in the heart of Grand Canyon. And you just did a beautiful job of telling us the story of your house. started to talk to us a little bit about volcanoes and where it is. So could you tell us about where we are geologically?
3: We are in the middle of the San Francisco volcanic field, which is uh, maybe still active. I mean, in the last thousand years, it's been active. I think it's considered active. The San Francisco peaks are right over there. And they go up to 12,633 feet. Used to go a whole lot higher before it blew its guts out. But we're on the Colorado Plateau, this volcanic field here. This house, we're on the side of a mesa, which is an old clinky volcanic flow. For natural disasters, you know, we're not going to get a hurricane or flood, but we might get a volcano someday, and it'll be wild. I hope it's over in the other side of town, though. Maybe it'll drive the property values down enough that my friends can move here. But I don't know. I don't have a whole lot to say about the geology of Flagstaff, per se, other than we're in the middle of a bunch of lava flows. But we're on top of the fabulous Colorado Plateau, which goes all the way to Wyoming and over to New Mexico and Colorado. and It's where all the beautiful canyon country is carved. And it has a few of these volcanic explosions here and there, and we just happen to live in one of them.
2: When you have someone in your boat who's asks you, tell me about the geology of Grand Canyon, maybe you have five minutes with them to have their attention to explain it to them in that period of time. What do you say to them?
3: It's different every time. I don't have a rote set of things I say or ways I go about it, but throw out a few lines, you know, and see if they respond, see if they're interested at all, or if they're already talking to the person next to them and they forgot they even asked the question, which is usually what happens. But occasionally, it's disappointingly rare, but occasionally people really want to go a little deeper. And I can go pretty darn deep in Grand Canyon, because I did study geology in college and in graduate school, and have spent a lot of my spare time chasing down the new developments. Some of the top geologists in Grand Canyon, as it turns out, are friends of mine. And so I, I get all the late beta on what they're figuring out, what things have changed, and how they're interpreting it. That's been a treat but it's really hard to work with a group of people on geology. I used to just ram it down their throats and and drive them crazy with uh, blah, 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 blah. Everybody needs to know all this geology. Well, they don't, I don't think. It's good to have it available, and it's good to try and give them a picture of geologic time and process and where we fit into all that, but a lot of people are just there to... Nowadays, it's the only time they're going to get away from their device, mm. the uh, nonstop barrage of information that is numbing us all to reality. And so I don't think I need to barrage them with more information. But it's there. It's available. And so it's hard for me to say, you know, how do you approach it? But you do get people want to know more. And it's wonderful to have a foundation of knowledge to take them somewhere. Or sometimes there's somebody else on the trip who knows more than me. Often there is about either the geology or the biology or the ethnology, or the archaeology. And it's really fun to take people deep when they're ready for it. And so that was sort of a twisted deflection of an answer there
2: (laughs) perfect we've been on the trail less traveled with Brad Dimmick it's time to eat dinner yay yeah Brad I just want to say thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the trail less traveled
3: thank god there's no more people traveling this trail it'd get crowded
2: I'd love to end your show with three bits of advice that you might share with the listener
3: oh my god three bits of advice follow your heart what you know what are those things That's a tough one, three pieces of advice. Don't believe people when they tell you you can't do something, because you probably can. Do what you want to do, and don't do what you don't want to do. And go big. Don't be a dick. These are all great pieces of advice.
2: Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The show premieres every Sunday night at 6, Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. The show is also a podcast, which is available everywhere, and you can follow as we record on location around the world by visiting traillesstraveled.net. If you haven't already heard, I'm very excited about a new partnership formed with explorer maps explorer maps is a small family business based in missoula montana with their storefront located on the corner of third and inez just down from the good food store the trail less traveled and explorer maps are working together to connect people and place through story maps storytelling conservation culture history art And live events, such as our Cartography Comes to Life series, you can find out more by visiting exploremaps.com. That's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed. Get engaged and speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places.